What is redistricting? Why does it happen? And when are these lines drawn? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. Think of every local election in your area, from your school board to your congressional elections. The candidates you see on your ballot are running in your district. Now, while districts have been around since colonial times, they've obviously evolved. As populations grow and demographics shift, redistricting has become necessary. So what's the history of redistricting? How does it work? And who does redistricting impact the most? Here to talk to me about the process is Senior Counsel for the Brennan Center's Democracy Program, Michael Lee. Michael joins me now. Michael, how's it going? It's going great. How are you? So far, so good. I have a feeling I'm going to be better once we talk about redistricting because, of course, people want to know more about that, hopefully. Um, This is an important topic because every decade, the U.S. Census Bureau releases a new census. And in order to reflect the new census, states have to redraw their district lines. And those results could mold the balance of power in Congress for years. So let's boil it down to the basics, Michael, starting with what is is redistricting? Ah, a great question. So <laughs> every 10 years in this country, we redraw congressional boundaries, legislative uh, district boundaries, uh, local government boundaries, city councils, county commissions, and the like. Um, and the reason that we do that is to make sure that districts are equally populated. That's a requirement of the Constitution. Districts have to have more or less the same number of people. And because people move around and because areas grow or shrink, we have to adjust districts every 10 years. And so that's a process that's known as redistricting. And it usually takes place in the year after the census. So usually in the year ending in one, like 2021, although some states and localities stretch it into 2022, or in some cases, even 2023. But every 10 years, we redraw district boundaries. It's also an opportunity for states to make sure that they're complying with other requirements of law. So for example, that they're complying with the Voting Rights Act, or they're complying with the requirements of state constitutions or state laws. And that is uh, what what happens in redistricting or what is supposed to happen. So I think about national parks and and something that I I wonder all the time is how they choose the boundary of that. And obviously it's very different because this has to do with the census and how many people live in certain areas. But um, just to my reason I bring this up is because I'm wondering um, how does uh, drawing the new district lines actually work? Who does it? Who gets to choose? And where are the boundaries? That that varies from state to state and locality to locality. In most places, we still leave it in the hands of legislature when it legislatures when it comes to drawing congressional district boundaries and legislative boundaries. And that just happens the same way that any law passes. It has to pass both chambers of the legislature. The governor has a chance to sign it or veto it. So it's no different than any other piece of legislation. A growing number of states, however, have uh, transferred power out of the hands of elected politicians and put it in the hands of an independent commission of everyday citizens who draw the maps. Um, Some states have a different version of that, which is slightly less independent. They'll use bipartisan commissions where the legislative leaders uh, all pick a certain number of people and they get together and they draw maps. So there are different ways that you can do it. But in most states, it is still a highly political process. Um, 
and one that you know uh, you know is highly politicized <laughs> uh, not surprisingly in a world in a world where you know like there aren't very many places where government is split between the parties anymore where you even even where you have a governor of a different right, um, party. right i mean and so in most most cases you know maps are drawn by the party in control and that usually means it's drawn by democrats with uh, you know with democrats only involved or republicans and only republicans involved so I actually I want to get into that in a second because I want to talk about um, gerrymandering. But first, when you are or when when these legislators or these bipartisan commissions are drawing the district lines, what data are they looking at in order to decide where to draw those lines? I know they're looking at data from the census, but but what exactly is that? Well, the, the number one data that they will look at is just the total population counts. So the census uh, counts are delivered by what is called census block. Uh, that's a relatively small geography. And so you use those census blocks to assemble districts. Um, and so the number one goal of redistricting, again, is to keep the, the, the populations of districts more or less the same. And so you use the census data for, for making sure you do that. But states... And localities will also use other kinds of data, uh, demographic data, either from uh, census products like the American Community Survey or other sources to make sure that they're complying with the Voting Rights Act and, and other other important laws. And in some places, people will also look at political data because you can layer elections onto the boundaries of new districts and kind of figure out how good of a Democratic district this is or how good of a Republican district this is. And of course, in, 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 the, in the United States, we have a, as I said, a highly political process. And so, you know, what the political outcomes are is, is oftentimes really, really important. So people will look at election data, but increasingly they're also looking at other kinds of data because, uh, you know, people want to know as much as you can about voters. And so there's more and more data available through, you know, the big data, um, you know, what kind of car you drive, uh, what, you know, where you shop, what magazines you subscribe to, what you post on Facebook or Instagram are increasingly being used to create sophisticated models about who you are. And that enables people to estimate whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, how strong a Democrat or how strong a Republican you are, and whether you're like a presidential year only voter or somebody who's going to vote in every single election, you know, even for dog catcher. And so those pieces of data can be used to construct um, you know, much more sophisticated models of how a district will perform under a wide variety of election circumstances. So say like college educated people move in a certain direction, you kind of kind of project what what happens to the, the district's political performance, because that is very, very important. That's sort of the cutting edge of, of redistricting. You know, in the past, you know, redistricting was sort of like a dark art. Um, you know, now it's become a dark science. Interesting. A dark art to a dark science. That's that that is fascinating because that's, you know, people like to just in in general, everything, it seems, has been politicized. But, you know, gerrymandering is something that's been going on for for a long, long time. So, um, well, actually, a quick a quick question. So then you, you, you mentioned these more sophisticated models and this. Um, you know, kind of additional data they might be looking at. But what does that have to do with the population? Because if you go back to the Constitution and you say that the main thing is just we want to keep every district with similar population, what? how can you then say, all right, we're going to draw the line here because more college-educated people are moving here or more people drive this kind of car going here? How does that work? I mean, wh- what's the correlation? Well, unfortunately, uh, there aren't many restraints in most states on what you can consider when you're drawing districts. Ah, there so we go. Lawmakers have a lot of 
free reign. And, you know, a big priority for a lot of people is, you know, making sure their their party does well out of redistricting or making sure more importantly that they do well out of redistricting. Is my district going to be safe or is it going to be competitive? I'm going to have a challenger. And so, you know, there are a lot of parochial concerns that come into that. Uh, and that is because we have it in most states placed a lot of constraints on what you can do. Now, some states have passed bans in their state constitutions on partisan gerrymandering, New York, California, others have that language, but most states do not. And in fact, when it comes to congressional redistricting, there are almost no rules. You know, you have to use single member districts as a requirement of federal law, um, but there's really nothing else. And in some places, state constitutions are completely silent. You know, are districts supposed to be compact? Are they supposed to be contiguous? Are they, you know, are they supposed to, uh, you know, be circles or whatever the case may be, it's totally up to the map drawer. So then, you know, the, these places that do have bans, how do they monitor that? Usually it would be enforced through litigation. So people would, uh, as in New York, they would bring a suit, you know, in New York, Democrats drew a very aggressive gerrymander that gave them several Republican seats, uh, Republicans not surprisingly, we're very up in arms about that. But because New York voters in 2014 had put a partisan gerrymandering ban in place, they were able to go to court and get a court to strike that down. And and, and the court ended up appointing a an expert to, to redraw the maps. And so New York now has much fairer maps under the maps that the expert drew. Uh, and so that's usually how it gets enforced uh, because people people who feel wronged will, you know, this is America, right? You know, if, there, if you have a problem, you go to court and you right. sue it and the court will fix it, right? This is that's how we- how, how Checks we and balances. Right? <laughs> yeah, know? it yeah. has to be. There has to be to keep things fair, right? All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. Okay, so then so then how does um, you know, obviously, this is a big conversation when it comes to elections and when it comes to representation. So then what happens after redistricting? How does that affect our elections? So the maps that are drawn every 10 years are, in most cases, used for the next 10 years. And so you know that determines who will have political power for the balance of the decade. Now, there are exceptions. You know, maps can be struck down um, in litigation. Litigation sometimes takes a long time, so they could be redrawn in, say, 2025 or the like. And sometimes states will find reason to redraw maps mid-decade. But generally, what what happens is that we're we're locked in, and, and, um, and that is of course why redistricting is so very important because it determines who will have power you know what power looks like whether uh, not only whether they're democrats and republicans and in, in fair numbers but also are people of color at the table are you know are communities that are that have really specific needs at the table and and that's that's really sort of the in, impact of of redistricting and it, it's it's one of the biggest things that happens it also sometimes is a sleeper issue for for a lot of folks because it, it doesn't seem because you don't when you're driving around you don't see the lines right and and right. so it, it's something that doesn't you know doesn't feels real to people but then uh, when you look at the balance of power and, and what power looks like it, it does and you know i go i always go back to john adams uh, at the beginning of the the founding of the nation he talked about how legislatures and by extension congress should be exact portraits miniature of the pe- miniatures of the people as a whole uh with the idea that you know congress that legislature should look like america right and mm-hmm. and and in all of its diversity and and all and, and that's that's who should be making decisions and that's after all why we have elections every two years because the, the founding generation thought as a mood of the people changes so should the composition of legislatures but 
when people put their thumb on the scale, what happens is that you, you really can't change that. And and you see that in, in Democratic states, you see that in, in Republican states where, you know, the, the who wins is basically locked in and you can never really unseat an incumbent, you know, unless you there's some huge scandal or some unforeseen shift. Right. Um I just I wanted to go back to kind of what happened in 2020 and 2021. Obviously, we're in a pandemic Um, that really put a wrench in things. How did the delays in data influence redistricting then? So we have become used to redistricting on a very set schedule. The census data is released uh, beginning in February uh, to the end of March, and then states redistrict in the year ending in one, but stretching to the year ending in two. Um, and, and it's a very normal set pattern. But last decade, or this decade, I should say, uh, the, the pandemic created a delay in getting the census data because the census itself was delayed. Uh, you know, the, just as they started taking the census, the COVID pandemic hit, everything had to shut down. So the census was delayed by several months, and that in turn delayed getting the data to states. Uh, and so it, in most states, it was a very rushed process. We really didn't get the data in full until. Uh, August of 2021, and, and many states, because of the election cycle this year, really had to have maps in place by the end of the year. So it was a very rushed process. COVID, of course, was still going on, uh, and so you know, like there oftentimes wasn't a lot of room for a lot of hearings. There wasn't a lot of time for a, a lot of hearings. Um, in addition, you know, everything had to be done by Zoom, and so it was a very awkward process, uh, suboptimal in a lot of ways. But at the same time, we have elections in 2022, and you, to have elections and primaries, uh, you need to have maps. And uh, states rushed and, and got the job done, uh, but sometimes not perfectly, and there will oftentimes be litigation. There is litigation that 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 is challenging a number of maps in in, mm. in several states. You know, ten years is a long time. Um, how how much do the lines change um, on these maps? I mean, what, how how worried or how not worried should people be when that time comes? Uh, well, it, it depends. You know, there there is gerrymandering that goes on, and, and gerrymandering has gone on since the very beginning of the, the country. Even Patrick Henry of Give Me the Pretty, Give Me Death fame tried to draw Virginia's first congressional map so that James Madison couldn't win an election to Congress. So even before we had the word gerrymandering, the, the founding generation was engaged in gerrymandering. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it is getting, you know, it, it, it can be really pernicious. So last decade, for example, Republicans in Ohio drew a map that had 12 Republicans and four Democrats, and all decade it was 12 Republicans and four Democrats, even in, in pretty good Democratic years, it was, you know, they could not win more than four seats. But that's not the case in other states. So, for example, in Texas, which is very fast growing, you know, Texas had a little bit over four million people last decade. You know, and it's changing really fast because, you know, college educated voters are, are shifting toward Democrats in big numbers. It, it can be really hard to sort of have a gerrymander stick for the whole of the decade if a state is changing very fast politically and changing very fast demographically as as Texas is. And so it, it is, you know, you, what you're really trying to do when you do gerrymanders in a place like Texas is you're trying to stick your fingers in the dike to stop the leaks. And and sometimes that's successful. Uh, it it, it more, more or less held last decade, but, uh, you know, it, it came close to not holding. And, and so, you know, it, it can be a challenging, challenging thing to do. 
Right. Just from your observations, do you think how we draw these lines is how it should be now or do you think it should change? It it is really an outlier the way that we draw maps in the United States. Almost no other modern democracy gives the map drawing pen to the people who actually will have to run for election under those lines. It seems like an obvious conflict of interest that if you're you, you should draw your own district and pick your own voters, basically. And, you know, the U.S. is a huge outlier. Most countries, whether it's Britain or Canada or, you know, New Zealand, France, they have independent bodies or, you know, civil servants who draw the, the, the maps using, you know, very objective rules. And, and, you know, we really are stuck in really the 18th century in the way that we do it. And it's, you know, it remains a very hardball, uh, uh, you know, uh, game here the good news is that there are increasingly there there is increasingly evidence that there's a better way to do that and you know states like california michigan colorado arizona have created independent commissions to draw maps and those have produced maps that are much fairer under multiple metrics of partisan fairness they're much fairer in terms of how they represent communities of color and they have survived legal challenges with a breeze uh, you know it, you know in america Almost any map gets sued on because somebody will have some kind of beef and people will file suit because mm-hmm. this is America. We draw maps and then we sue over them. <laughs> uh, but uh, but but in, in, in states like California or Michigan, where those maps are challenged, courts throw the challenges out and they, they say, you know, these maps are fine. And, and the, the new, you know, the, there is a model that actually works better. And so, you know, what it really involves, like the, the key really in, in states like California and Michigan is that one party doesn't get to make all the decisions to pass a map in California or Michigan. You have to have some support from Democrats, some support from Republicans, some support from independent members of the, the commissions that draw the maps there. And if you don't, they deadlock it, a court draws the map. And so, so you know, that bipartisanship really uh, ends sort of a lot of the gerrymandering because really where you, where you see the most aggressive gerrymandering is in states where Democrats have all the power or Republicans have all the power and they can lock the, the other side out of the room, sometimes literally, you know, they, they draw the maps behind closed doors <laughs> and nobody gets to see them until they pass them. And so, uh, you know, if, if you have a more bipartisan process, a more transparent process, you end up with much better maps, you know, from from a partisan fairness standpoint, from a racial fairness standpoint, but also from the standpoint of representing communities. I'll, I'll give you like the example that I always uh, use, which is uh, in, in the 2011 round of redistricting, there was a demand but from people who live in the Los Angeles foothills to keep their communities together. Now they, they had been split into different districts, which made a lot of sense, you know, because people who live in the foothills drive down into the valley to go to work, go to school, shop. And so the districts that they were in made a lot of sense, uh, but the people in the foothills went to the commission and said, there's one thing that we have in common that uh, we aren't getting because we're split into different districts. And that's somebody who will pay attention to wildfires. Um, you know, ah. we're not, we don't have an advocate for that in Sacramento. We'd like to be kept in one district. So that there's somebody there who will be like the wildfire representative, right? You know, the person who like, that's their number one issue. And the commission heard that evidence and they said, you know, that seems like a really compelling reason to be put in the same district. And they ended up drawing it. Uh, and 
you know, and, and to this day, if you go to the website for the representative from that area, her website talks all about wildfires, what she's doing, information about wow. <laughs> funding and resources. And, and you know, that is that is something that happened because people went to the commission and said, hey, our community is not being met. And this is what our community is. And the people who put together the California commission never thought that like a shared interest in preventing wildfires would be a community. But, uh, you know, they they made a compelling case. And and so communities are better served. Um, And, you know, you end up with much more, you know, you know, you know, uh, you know, better maps all around and, 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 you know, from representing people of color to representing you know, people with a shared interest in wildfires. And so there is a better way of doing it. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, there are lots of ways you can get there, ballot initiatives, you know, uh, you know, uh, legislatures might pass something, but, you know, also Congress could come in over the top and require commissions to draw congressional districts, which is something that they've considered in the past. They haven't passed it, but that's something that could be on the table in the future. See, that's the beauty of living in this country is we have ways so that we can represent everyone who needs to be represented. And I love that story about the shared interest in preventing wildfires, because that's something that directly impacts the people of that community. So, I mean, that's how it should work. Right. I mean, I'm I'm just curious. You said how many how many states have the bipartisan commission? Is it four? You said Arizona, Michigan. Four states have Colorado and California have independent commissions, so they're strong independent commissions where they're, you know, the the legislative leaders don't have a lot of role in picking members. A number of states have what we call bipartisan or politician commissions. Sometimes they consist of the actual politicians themselves, but sometimes they're people appointed by them. And so like New Jersey, it's the political parties and legislative leaders who appoint oh, the members of the commission and the like. So, you know, they're they're still, you know, those commissions aren't as independent, but they still do a much better job of drawing their maps. Why, why than, don't more than, states have that? I, I think it's oftentimes very challenging for for um, members to think about giving up power because the number one question people will have is like, well, how is this going to affect me and my district? And mm. I think that that it's a really scary thing, uh, you know, because you know people people care about fairness. I mean, you know, a lot of people care about fairness, but they also care about winning re-election, and they're kind of worried that you know giving power to somebody else so uh, the pol- you know, which i think tells you like how, how important redistricting is right, you right. Know, like the, where the lines are really does affect you know who wins and i think people who are in office understand that exactly and they're comfortable with their voters and their path to winning and they would like to keep the status quo so you're telling me i mean i guess this is probably how it tell me if this is right and how it works so the the political party who was in charge at the time they would have to also be the ones to say, you know what, we're going to give up power to an independent commission. So that's why it's more rare, because it has to be approved by the person who's in power. Yeah, the states that have adopted independent commissions have have generally been able to go to the ballot directly. You can voters can collect, you know, circulate petitions, put it on the ballot directly, which is what happened in Michigan. That's what happened in Mm. California, because then you can in run the legislature. It's much harder when you have to go through the legislature. Now, again, Congress has the power under the elections clause of the Constitution to require all states to use independent redistricting commissions. So, you know, even if Texas didn't want to or, you know, New York didn't want to. Congress could say everybody has to play by the same rules. And, you know, there was a bill, the the Freedom to Vote Act, that would have done that. Uh, but Congress, uh, you know, has trouble passing anything nowadays, and they didn't pass that either. And so, you know, that is, uh, you know, that that's still on the table for the future. But there's growing evidence that 
independent commissions really do actually do a better job and um you know that all the concerns that people had about like well these ordinary citizens won't know what to do they're their roofs are not going to be sophisticated enough, you know, and, and and the like, I think really goes by the wayside because California now, its commission has been in place for two redistricting cycles. It's drawn really excellent maps that passed unanimously this decade um, at the commission and survived legal challenges and are much fair and, you know, and, and fair, fair to both parties, fair to racial and ethnic minorities, fair to communities. And, you know, that really is a much better way to do it. So obviously, I feel like it's been a theme um, why why redistricting matters is because obviously it it affects the voter directly. So um, just to wrap things up, Michael, what do you think is the most important thing people should know about redistricting and why should the voter necessarily care? The most important thing I would say about redistricting is simply that it, it happens, right? You know, this is something that historically, you know, people haven't paid much attention to. It is historically been in the dark, in part because, you know, like it was, you know, it's 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 a state house thing and, and you know, it, it oftentimes, you know, people go out of their way to hide it. The good news is that there are a lot more ways to get involved in the fight against gerrymandering than there were in the past uh, as, you know, the cycle, there, there were a lot more public map drawing tools uh, there that enable you to create your own maps or analyze maps for how fair they are among along a whole range of dimensions. And there are a lot more organizations that are working on reforming the process, working on getting communities to participate in the process. And and so, you know, it is an issue that is starting to resonate more with voters. I, I said, but I began by saying people didn't pay attention to it. Well, the good news is that more people are paying attention mm. to it. And, you know, hopefully that will increase as time goes on, as the, these tools become more available and it becomes harder for people to, um, you know, hide in the in the dark um, and, and do the the dirty deed uh, behind closed doors. And so, you know, there is is good news. You know, I, I spoke earlier about how technology is making it easier to draw pernicious maps because you really know much more about voters. Well, the good, the good, the great news is that uh, the average everyday citizen also has more power in his or hand, her hands because of technology. And so, uh, you know, it is a constant battle, but, uh, uh, you know, the, the good guys have a lot of tools in their hand. Absolutely. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, glad to glad to be here. All right. If you missed anything from class, these are my office hours. And here are some top takeaways about redistricting. Number one. Redistricting is the process of drawing electoral district boundaries, and it happens every 10 years, typically a year after the census. It's also an opportunity to make sure states are compliant to other parts of the law, like the Voting Rights Act. Number two, how the district lines are chosen varies from state to state. In many, it's left in the hands of the legislators, and the maps have to pass in both chambers. Some use bipartisan commissions, and others have independent commissions. A lot of different data is used to draw the lines, ranging from census data to political data. And number three, gerrymandering typically happens when one party controls the state's legislative bodies. Michael uses the phrase, it's gone from a dark art to a dark science, just because of the amount of technology and new data we have had throughout the years. 
Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on redistricting. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. Dismissed.